Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 40th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data and Government, a justice special supported by the Nuffield Foundation. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online for our 40th event, nearly four years to the day since our first. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if you were here for our very first Databytes, DB1, back in April 2019. I think uh, that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> and our sympathies. Now, reaching 40 often means a midlife crisis, but we overtook our sports car phase a long time ago. Reaching DB12 meant we'd had more DBs than Aston Martin by July 2020. And hosting Databytes is such a lucrative gig, I've actually been able to afford one of them. Now, there'll be no midlife crisis for Databytes. Instead, we have four brilliant speakers for you tonight. Appropriately enough for a justice special, we're in for an arresting evening. Not like that. Uh, and rest assured, there are some more criminal puns coming up. But let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, you can use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb40, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can also raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? I hope you know by now. Those who've been before, you're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. As you've already heard, and we'll do so again shortly, this is our 40th data bytes. You can watch the previous 39, including last month's, on the IFG website. So tonight's data bytes is a special one for two reasons. First, it's one of two justice data specials with the Nuffield Foundation. The next one will be on the 17th of May, and we'll also be producing a short report. More to come on that in our first presentation. But second, tonight marks two significant data bytes, milestones. Today is our 40th event, which concludes our fifth cycle of eight, eight being an important number to us. By the end of tonight's event, we'll have had 160 speaking slots filled by 166 different speakers representing 100 different organisations. Those eight-minute presentations plus eight minutes of questions come to 42 hours and 40 minutes exactly because our speakers never run over. <laughs> to put that in context, it's shorter than the entire running time of HBO's Game of Thrones, whose final episode aired in our second month, but longer than the BBC's Line of Duty, two series of which have run while Databytes has been going. It's longer than Graham Potter, sacked as Chelsea manager this week, watched his team in Premier League action. It's longer than listening to Nadine Dorries' Four Streets Quartet on audiobook, and it's some seven hours longer 
than Michelle Donnellan's record-breaking stint as Education Secretary last summer. As well as 40 events, it's four years almost to the day since our first ever Data Bytes. Obviously, it's been a quiet four years in British politics, or if you prefer, 29.9 trusses, 38.5 quartangs, or 1,003 Donnellans. Now, during our four years and 40 events, we've had a global pandemic, which sent us online only for nearly two years, four prime ministers, two monarchs, two Scottish first ministers, just, one Welsh first minister, two first ministers of Northern Ireland, but almost as much time without a functioning executive, two US presidents, two Labour leaders, five different people leading the Lib Dems, seven UKIP leaders, and only Plaid Cymru with the same leader now as in April 2019. We've had four different justice secretaries across five terms, five environment secretaries and five levelling up secretaries, six chancellors, six secretaries of state at DCMS, seven education secretaries, eight ministers for the cabinet office, eight housing ministers. And if you're thinking that level of turnover is closer to football management than a functioning government, you'd be right. Watford have had 11 managers <laughs> since we kicked off. We've had three conservative leadership elections, two of them contested. 90 changes of allegiance as MPs have defected, had the whip suspended and had it returned. 16 by-elections with six seats changing hands. Several MOG changes. One election in Scotland, one in Wales, one general election at Westminster. And in 40 whole events, maybe a couple of introductory jokes that have actually been funny. <laughs> We've had nearly 60 ministerial resignations outside reshuffles. Here's our famous chart, which has appeared at almost as many databytes as I have. Unlike me, it's also appeared on Have I Got News For You. That's Ian Hislop's genuine reaction to there being a chart on a comedy show. Now, as part of these introductions, we've turned all sorts of data into lovely charts. And whatever the data set, ministerial resignations, or say, cabinet secretaries over time, we've always tried to highlight the trend. Ah, never works, that one. <laughs> as well as turning data into charts, we've also turned it into music. We turned freedom of information into free jazz. And we sonified all of those resignations. We've also had two songs, because why not? I mean, also, why? Um, there was the very model of a modern data doggerel, listing all the organisations responsible for data across government. The creation of the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology earlier this year means it might be time for a new version, something for us all to look forward to. And of course, in early 2021, when we'd all lost our minds, there was the national data strategy sea shanty. Like the... Like the Weller Man upon which it was based, it hoped an elusive and long-promised hero would arrive to rescue us from a suboptimal situation. Soon will the Chief Data Officer come, or will not, it turns out, as the UK government has still not appointed a permanent Chief Data Officer. Let's hope there's one in place by the time we've gotten through the next 40 data bytes. A huge thank you to all of you for enduring the entertaining intros, as well as enjoying all the great speakers we've been lucky enough to bring you over the last few years. And speaking of great speakers, let's turn to tonight. First, we're going to hear from uh, more about our Justice Data Project, supported by Nuffield from my IFG colleague, Tom Pope. 
Then, making her record equaling third data bytes appearance, we have Anna Powell Smith from the Centre for Public Data on data and statistical gaps in criminal justice. After that, we'll hear from Toby Hayward Butcher from the MOJ's Better Outcomes Through Linked Data Programme on better supporting people with complex needs by linking and improving the government data held on them in a safe and secure way. And finally, we have Dan Corrie of New Philanthropy, New Philanthropy Capital on the work of the Justice Data Lab. Our next Data Bytes will be on Wednesday the 3rd of May. We'll then have our second Justice Data Special on Wednesday the 17th of May, and we'll be back in June and July before a summer break. We're only able to keep Data Bytes going thanks to the support of our partners. We're extremely grateful to the Nuffield Foundation for sponsoring tonight's event, and of course the 17th of May as well. If you'd like your name up here in lights, or at least on projector, please get in touch with my colleague Pratesh. And if you might be interested in speaking or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. So without further ado, let's kick off our 40th uh, Data Bytes. Hearing more about our Justice Data Project, I'll be handing over to Tom. Well, thank you very much, Gavin. It's great to be here to talk about a project which in many ways is the reason why we're all here this evening, because tonight marks the kickoff of this project that the IFG is running with the support of the Nuffield Foundation on creating and using better justice data. It's a project team of myself, Gavin, and Sophie Metcalf. Now, the IFG has a long-standing interest in uh, justice system data and use of data in the justice system. Our annual performance tracker is a data-driven look at the performance of nine different public services, of which three, the police, criminal courts, and prisons, are part of the criminal justice system. Um, to give an example of some of the analysis we've done there, this chart shows the Crown Court backlog uh, since 2010, and as is well documented, it has increased substantially since 2019. We did some analysis looking at the type of cases that have and haven't been heard since March 2020, and that implies that the cases left in the backlog are actually a lot more complex than your average case, and that means that the true scale of the backlog um, is much worse, and actually reducing the backlog will be much harder. But Performance Tracker is about more than just using data to understand performance of public services. It's also about understanding how public services can perform more effectively. And we know that data is a, and using data effectively is a really important way that we can do that. We think that's especially important, but also especially difficult in the justice system. And that's partly because the justice system, uh, system, no matter where you draw the boundary, is just phenomenally complicated. So we just take the criminal justice system. You start with the police in the home office, then get the CPS involved when you're thinking about charging someone. That then goes to the courts run by HMCTS, but jointly accountable to the MOJ and the judiciary. If someone's sentenced, then they're over to HMPPS. But that's just the criminal justice system. Think about the family justice system as well. Other really important actors there are DFE and schools, CAFCAS providing independent advice, and ADCS as well. And this is by no means an exhaustive list of all the different organizations involved in the justice system. Each of these different organizations are collecting data at their relevant point, their relevant node of the system. And we know that if we want such a system to work effectively in a way that we actually understand the effect on the user, the individual traveling through the system, we need to integrate that data. But we also know that for a system to work smoothly, we need to be having good data sharing between those organizations so everyone's operating from the same information. 
The other way that data can drive better performance of public services is by using data to better understand the impact of different policies and what the system is actually doing. And that's where you know, administrative data in particular is a really exciting possibility. There's been good progress made on this in recent years across lots of domains, but including injustice, but there's definitely further that we can go. Good examples include um, work that the Nuffield family, Justice Observatory, have already done using data that is available. But there's actually so much data that could in principle be made um, available for researchers, safely of course, um, within the justice system that can help us better answer questions like what's the impact of of remote hearings on justice outcomes and many other important questions beside. And we think that both on the integration of data and on the use of um, data to better understand policy, um, there have been strides made, but there's further that we can go. And that's the motivation for this project. We have a set of questions that we want to answer here to better understand um, the role that data can play in the justice system and how it can be used more effectively. So firstly, we want to ask, what's data for? What are we trying to achieve using data? Who should have access to it, both internally and externally of government, and when? We want to look at the, the current modernization programs, such as the HMCCS reform program, the common platform as, as an example. What are the pros and cons? What can we learn from those? How far are we moving towards a coherent strategy for justice? What's the current state of data across the three justice jurisdictions, civil, family, and criminal? And can we learn lessons, perhaps from those jurisdictions that are further ahead, that could be adopted by those that are not quite as advanced? And if we look up beyond justice, what lessons can be learned from other public services approach to data too? Now, the form of this project, as Gavin's already outlined, is two data bytes, this one tonight and the 17th of May. Do get that one in your diaries if it isn't already. That's then going to be followed up with some interviews and some further research, and a short report will be published at the end of the summer. And we think that Databytes, this forum, is the perfect way to try to get a new insight into some of these questions. And why is that? Well, the, the set of um, presentations that you'll hear tonight and in six weeks' time will be really varied. Some will be celebrating success and ways that data is working really effectively in the system. We can learn lessons from those about how that can be adopted more broadly in other bits of the system. But there are also going to be examples, both tonight and in seven, on the 17th of May, of areas where the system's not working as effectively as it is, identifying opportunities for data to work better. Second, we're going to hear presentations that cover um, criminal justice, but also family and civil justice as well. And we can look to learn lessons from those different domains, as I've already outlined. But there's also you, the expert Databytes audience, who have experience of use of data in all kinds of other domains, in public services and beyond as well. And we think that there's insights to be learned there. And what we're doing here in Databytes is convening a group, both internal of government and externally, who are fundamentally all pulling in the same direction. We all want to see data being used more effectively, both um, within justice and more broadly. So this is the bedrock of our, our projects and the way that we're trying to have impact. Now, as Gavin's already outlined, this is not the first Databytes that we've had. And in our 39 previous editions, we've already heard lots of relevant presentations um, that provide insights into our project. And to name just a few, we can go back to one of the early Databytes in October 2019, when Natalie Byron presented on the Byron Review, which was looking at how HMCTS could better use data uh, to meet stakeholders' needs. Um, in July 2020, when we moved online, we heard from Professor Betsy Stanko and Amy Summerfield on 
Data First, a really exciting initiative using administrative data. Fast forward a few months, and we heard from David Reed on the internal data infrastructure at MOJ, uh, looking at how they ensure that data is used consistently internally and that there, there aren't version control and other such issues. And about nine months ago, we heard from Daniel Fleury from the MOJ, who gave a really interesting presentation on data governance in the justice system, but particularly those decisions about when and how data can be shared. So we think all of those past presentations provide really useful insights for us, but we're really excited for the presentations both tonight and going forwards um, in six weeks' time that will provide further insight. But I want to use my last minute or so to talk a bit more about how you can help us um, and how you can sort of get involved in the project. Well, a really good start is that you're here or you're watching online or you're watching a recording back online, and that's great to have you along. And we're also really excited to hear your questions. Please, please do ask those probing questions of our next three speakers that will help us really tease out those key insights for you know, broader implications for the use of data in the justice system. After this event, Gavin and I will be standing out there um, on the landing. We'd be very happy to, to talk about this. There's nothing that we love more than talking about data in the justice system. And if what you have to say is simply too chunky for a, um, a, a quick, light conversation on a Wednesday evening, please do email us with your, your more substantive um, ideas and conversation. We'd love to um, hear more from you. And I will stop there. Thank you very much, Tom. Now, before we get to the probing questions for the rest of our speakers, we do have eight minutes uh, of probing questions for Tom. Uh, if you're joining us online, uh, please use the Slido, which you're probably already on. If not, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB40 capital S capital DB. Um, if you're here in the room, uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. Please do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can, but remember we are on the record. Um, do keep uh, things short as well, because obviously we will be up against the clock as soon as we start asking the first question. So who in the room would like to ask the first question at our 40th Databytes? Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask. <laughs> you know, nobody ever wants that to happen. We've got one down here. Hi there, I'm Jonathan Flowers. I, uh, I chair a company and a public sector audit committee and a charity, amongst other sorts of things. But um, I'm really interested in, I, I think that always interests me about this kind of stuff is you can do an awful lot in terms of push, um, in terms of data and evidence and all of that kind of thing. But is there also anything you need to do to stimulate the pull? Um, certainly in the sectors that I'm more familiar with, which isn't this one, mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest issues is actually having a culture of data use um, people have got so used to making decisions without data that they don't even know there are things they're allowed to be curious about. And I'm wondering whether that's going to form an element of this at all. Yeah, it's a really interesting point and a good one. I think there are sort of twi twin aims of, of this project in a way. One is working with the people internally who will be presenting tonight and, and presenting on the 17th of May who are, you know, fully appreciate that the power that data can bring to both make a system work more effectively, but also to help us to, to kind of understand the impacts of policy as I was outlining. But I think it's also in, through our report and the way that we try to amplify that is to, yeah, reach those other stakeholders who perhaps 
um, you know, are in those key decision-making positions and maybe don't fully appreciate the benefit of data and maybe see particularly the sort of use of data, uh, internal data externally as more a sort of PR risk than an opportunity. So I, I think that we're, we're seeing that as part of what we're doing here is to highlight many of the successes, the ways that data is already being used, can be used even better to promote that culture of, of more data use. And shameless plug, we published a report a few weeks ago on data sharing during the pandemic, which touched on some of those cultural uh, barriers and some of the incentives as well. Uh, who'd like to ask the next question? Uh, I'll go to the back row first, and I'll come to you next. Uh, my name is Manoj. Uh, I work for a transportation project for HS2 uh, from the data side. Uh, my question, I got two questions, actually. One is that how can you make it your data more proactive than reactive, rather than creating reports more insightful and the second question is, what are the challenges you face for version control of data? Thank you. Both great questions that I hope we'll have a fuller answer to at the end of this project than the start, which is my get out for any question that I don't currently have a, a great answer. I think in terms of being proactive rather than reactive, it, I think that there's, there's something about the way a system operates that kind of really relies on the data and is, is being informed by the data. So part of that is about ensuring that data is sort of updated and can be accessed in quite a quick way, particularly internally, so that it can really inform decisions. So to an extent, obviously, that is reactive, but it's proactive in the sense that you're ensuring that you have data available soon enough to inform those decisions. I suppose what really reactive can look like is data comes in that's sort of dated six months ago and you suddenly realize there's a problem. So trying to speed that up is important. On, on version control, I think actually some of the past presentations we've heard, particularly from um, on, on MOJ infrastructure, is really important. But I think that that issue across, um, I mean, you, you see it actually across different data sets that are published that look kind of similar, but are maybe from slightly different organizations and numbers that you think should be exactly the same, particularly around timeliness, end up being slightly different because the basis of, of the data is slightly different. I think a lot of that is about communication and ensuring that we're avoiding those silos of almost doing double the work as well of different organizations creating the same data, perhaps on a slightly different basis. So I think that, all, that problem of kind of um, replication all comes into that, that, that feature of ensuring that we've got a system that's really joined up and is working from a common set of, of data, basically. Thanks. And then, yes. Hi, good evening, Tom. Uh, John Spanton from Valtech. Um, as you alluded in your presentation, it's a, you know, a huge complex space in terms of organisations and mm. the, the data available. I'd wondered if you had any particular challenge areas that you were prioritising to look at first. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I kind of, yeah, as I said, that justice is a huge thing. I think mostly we will be focusing um, as much or more on the courts aspect, because that's sort of the, the central node, if you like, of all of those different justice domains, um, while also thinking you know, how the courts are sharing data with those other areas. So I think that, that's a particular priority. And um, for us at IFG, obviously, we've, our experience in this area is much more in the criminal justice side. I think in some ways that's an area where data is a bit more developed um, not, not in all respects, but certainly in some respects. And um, we know that Nuffield in particular have a long-standing interest on the family side. So we're particularly interested in thinking about how lessons from the criminal side can read over to the family and civil sides where we've historically thought a bit less. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. I'll come to you next. Um, Anonymous, good evening to you, Anonymous. 
asks, um, to be successful, is there a, a requirement for holistic buy-in across the entire justice ecosystem? If the answer is yes, is there an argument for an independent organisation to oversee the end-to-end -end justice data strategy and delivery? Well, that's a big question. I think at, at some fundamental level, if you really want a, a system of data to operate effectively, I think you do need that sort of system-wise buy-in. Otherwise, the tendency towards silos within a system, I think, is going to be quite great. Um, as to whether you therefore need an independent organisation, I think it, it's, there's almost a bit of a cart and horse situation where if you don't have the buy-in in the first place, it's probably going to be hard to institute and then have the authority of that that independent body, um, but that, that is a question that I first thought about when it, it first came up from, from your mouth 30 seconds ago, Gavin, so it could well be that, there are, uh, that, that there's a better answer that I can come up with, or maybe that you have an answer to. Well, I was going to say, I, I think the answer will be in the final report. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got a question in the back row there. Hi. Um, so you mentioned, obviously, we do have a lot of administrative data sets that uh, we can uh, do analysis from, but data quality is always an issue, mm -hmm. and I imagine it's only going to get worse as resources get tightened, mm -hmm. uh, and sort of it might not be the forefront of case workers' minds uh, when they're trying to do things very quickly. Um, is that something that's in your remit uh, to be looking at data quality of existing mm -hmm. systems? I think de definitely we want to understand whether it's thinking about what new data could be made available, but also about whether existing data is, is fulfilling needs. And I think on, on that, it's right that it's particularly when it's making data available for external researchers, you really need to have buy-in internally that it is time and resource and effort worth spending to make that data effective. And so I think that, that feeds in, in in a way that my answer to the first question about what we want to achieve is sort of making the case for the importance of, of data and making justice sort of decision-making effective. And I think, I mean, you, you're here tonight, there is lots being done internally already, and it's, it's not like this is some, some data wasteland by any means, but I think there are ways that can be working hopefully more effectively. Excellent. Any f a quick question? I, I'll take one there. I'll come to you for one of the next ones. Sorry. Hi, uh, my name is Raya Sam. I'm from Valtech. Uh, my question is more on the ethics and data privacy. Mm. What are you doing to tackle that? Because this is complex and it's part of the quality, but you know, it can get crazy. Um, how are you dealing with sensitive data? Mm -hmm. um, again, uh, we'll see in the final report, but I mean, I, I think absolutely, particularly when we're thinking about the use of data externally, we're not coming from a position of more is always better. And I think that's why having a, a real sense of what data is for in the justice system, I think, is, is a really key part of this because that helps determine actually where is the case for using data strongest, where we can ensure there are appropriate safeguards, but actually where is that not a priority and therefore it's not worth the risk. Brilliant. Well, um, I, I know this is a conversation we will continue. Um, Tom, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And um, thank you to 
uh, the various people who put questions online which we didn't get to. Um, Linda Cusworth asked, said that one of the issues is a shortage of researchers who have the skills to work with the data and an interest in the justice system. How can we make it a more attractive field for data savvy individuals? Um, John Geeve asks if we're looking at crime reduction as well as the CJS process. So after the police and courts get involved, that's definitely something we'll bear in mind. Um, we've got a nice useful statement from Jonathan uh, as well, which is um, if we're thinking holistically, we might find that police and crime commissioners are an interesting stakeholder group. So any thoughts like that, uh, as well as questions, very much appreciated. Uh, now we're going to move on to our second speaker of the evening. As I said, it's her record equaling third appearance at Databytes. A very warm welcome to Anna. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a very special place to be, I think. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, research my organisation has been doing into data and statistics gaps in criminal justice. Um, we are a non-partisan, non-profit organisation. Uh, we've been around for about two and a half years. Uh, we try to influence um, policy and legislation to have better measures in uh, to improve the quality of data for civil society. Uh, we also work on data gaps. So where civil society organisations can't get the data they need, we try and help them to get it. Um, and my background is actually in computer science, um, and I've moved into policy. Uh, so about this research, um, so this is a bit negative, this research, um, but that's our job. Um, it's also negative in the sense, like a photographic negative, it's about questions that can't be answered, not questions that can. Um, two important things I want to say to start with. Um, my researcher, Gideon Leibovitz, did a lot of the work. You have to, he's on holiday, unfortunately, but you have to imagine he's here and did the work. Um, and we were funded to do this by the Justice Lab, who are an initiative of the Legal Education Foundation, a uh, grant-making charity, as part of their work to improve the quality and availability of justice data. Um, so with that, I will tell you more about it. Um, oh, sorry, these slides have been converted to PowerPoint, so they might have gone a bit strange. Um, so we set out to identify data gaps in criminal justice and recommend how they could be filled. We've been thinking about other policy areas too, and we knew that people often reference justice as an area where it was hard to get data they needed. And we had two goals. One was to establish a methodology for thinking about data gaps. Um, and the second uh, was to uh, provide some practical recommendations for some gaps that could be filled by MOJ. Um, so the first question is, what's a data gap? Um, we define it as an area where a lack of published data makes it hard to answer a question of significant public interest. Uh, which immediately produced another question, which is, what does this mean? And who defines that? Uh, so we think it's possible to think about this in a way that isn't completely subjective. And we decided to look at it using published sources. So where an MP uh, or a peer or a significant stakeholder says, we tried to answer a question and we couldn't because there wasn't data. Um, that's a data gap for us. Uh, we wanted to do it using published sources. We thought it was easier to scale, easy to replicate. Um, and often if you go to people and say, what data would you like, you get a shopping list, whereas this is more about, we're doing our work anyway. Um, so, um, we looked at written reports, we looked at uh, the last five years, about 50 select committee reports from the Commons of the Lords, about 40 independent reports to government from different organisations, and about 160 reports from major sort of justice civil society organisations. Um, and then Gideon looked at them all and found references to where they said, we need better data, which is why he's on holiday, because he's so tired. Um, <laughs> if we had more time, we'd have liked to have looked at academic research, um, potentially media, House of Commons Library, but we kind of had limited time, so that's what we did. Um, we also use computers. Um, so we, it's great, about 5,000 parliamentary questions to the MOJ. 
Uh, we looked at which ones asking for quantitative information. Um, you can do this, you can automate this quite easily. Um, we looked at which of them got replies saying, we, can't, we don't have the data, it's not centrally held, whatever, whatever. And then we read those manually to see which were actually valid responses of that kind. And that worked quite well and found out 300 questions like that. Um, we published methodology and all the source data openly, it's all online. It's not perfect, but it is scalable and it does, it does work. Um, we aggregated all these findings, and then we went to some actual data, justice data experts, um, and uh, basically said, like, we found some areas where people like you have been saying we better data. Uh, do you agree with that? What do you think about this? Um, and we also began to investigate the underlying data that was held in the system, which was quite difficult. Um, but we have done it in other areas too. So we used FOIs to try and find out what's actually in the databases. Uh, we talked to statisticians where we could. Um, and we used techniques that kind of journalists and other organizations use. Um, wasn't easy. The, actually, the best way we found was to talk to somebody whose job it was to type information into Common Platform. Um, and they could tell us a bit more about what their job was like. Um, based on this, we came up with four areas of recommendations. These aren't the sort of leading data gaps necessarily, but they're data gaps that are really important, people talk about a lot, um, and where we think it is possible to do more than is currently being done. Uh, so I'll go through them all. Uh, the report has many more in. These are sort of major things we found. Um, remand and bail. Um, we don't have regular stats on how long people are held in remand, um, including how many are held over legal time limits, which is kind of a major issue. Um, also, the reasons why bail is refused, which is interesting because it's potentially you know, different for different groups. Um, and that is recorded in the system, we believe. Um, sentencing is a big area where data is really important to understand how it's working and if it's working. Um, the LAMI review uh, some years ago said the government should publish data on uh, sentencing for individual offences at individual courts. The government accepted the recommendation, told Parliament it was complete. We don't think it's been done. Uh, we can't find if it's been done. Um, so that's a really important thing where we need to get a clearer answer, I think, at least why that's not out there. Um, also for flagged offences, so things like hate crime and domestic abuse, which aren't necessarily formal offences in legislation but are flagged in the system, we don't have good data on sentencing for those things. Um, Court operations. Um, one area we looked at quite closely was about legal representation. Um, so we don't have any public data or stats on how many people are appearing without a barrister or solicitor in magistrate's courts. And this is an area of public interest because um, you know, it's not a good position for people to be in. And the anecdotal evidence is many more people are now doing this because of legal aid cuts. We don't actually have any hard data in the magistrate's courts. Um, and this has been flagged by quite a lot of organizations. And in theory, it should be possible to derive that relatively easily. Uh, and also more detailed data on the backlog. So we know the backlog is going up, but we don't actually really have public data on which courts, which offenses, where things might be going wrong, of the kind that would actually let us analyze it in more detail. Uh, and finally, um, lower level crime. So we actually know starting a little about antisocial behavior. Uh, we don't even know how often those powers are used. Um, there's no data on that. Um, and similarly, out-of-court disposals, which are increasingly popular uh, community resolutions. Rather than going to court, you say to people, um, well, you know, issue a caution or a community resolution. And these are really good on the whole, but we don't really know how they're being used, who's getting them, whether they're working, and so on. Um, but wait. Um, so two things that are really important to talk about in the context of this research. Um, firstly, doesn't Data First, uh, Justice Data Lab, Delivery Dashboards, et cetera, et cetera, solve all these problems? 
Um, so the answer to that is they're good, but they are very much led by the length of government. Um, data first requires you to get pre-approval from MOJ. Uh, you have to define the question you want to answer and then get approval. It's only a certain type of data and the access is very slow. These are questions that are public interest but aren't possible to answer. So it's, it's a different area, really. And secondly, isn't data the whole problem to which the answer is? Yes, of course, it'd be naive to suggest data is. Um, it has to come second to people's needs. But on the other hand, the data you make available defines what questions you can answer and whose questions you can answer. And if you're not answering certain people's questions, that's really important. Uh, so what next? Um, these gaps, three, three conclusions we made from our research. The gaps really matter. They're really important. They're really basic, fundamental questions that many people are asking. We think they're mostly fixable. We believe they're mostly fixable, data quality allowing. Um, but there are you know, ways you can address that. Um, and thirdly, MOJ does have a duty to address them, a formal duty under the Code of Practice Statistics. Um, they have to identify, they have to address information gaps and be transparent about why they're not publishing stats to meet them. Uh, so our plan now is to go and talk to the minister, if we can. Um, we, the select committee are quite supportive and try and see, uh, at least get some answers about why these gaps uh, exist and what we can do about them. Uh, so thank you. Um, if any of these ring a bell or if you have gaps you struggle with, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, all the research is online and those are our email addresses. Thank you very much, Anna. Uh, again, a reminder, if you're online, you can put your questions to Anna via Slido, uh, which is bit.ly slash slidodb40 if you're not already there. Um, but I will start again in the room. Who'd like to go first? I see a hand there. I am uh, Donald. I work for a community safety partnership in West London. Um, two things that came across from your presentation. One is the overwhelming driver, perhaps, for what you're doing is disproportionality. That seemed to be a theme in a lot of the slides. Well, it wasn't mentioned, but I think that was yeah. absolutely really important one. And the other thing which I've been dealing with actually recently is on antisocial behaviour, which is the complete lack of any demographic breakdown, even on age. So everyone says, oh, space for young people only. And I've only found one very limited piece of research saying that it's only about half of young people, but there, there were no definitions. I couldn't find the original paper. There's a complete lack of research as well as, you know, if there's no academic research, it's hard to see how the ministry are gonna do anything, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, disproportionality, I think, is the one big theme, and the other is accountability for the institutions. So you can't, without good data, you can't see who's affected by these things. Then you also can't see whether the institutions are, you know, how they're working and so on. Um, so definitely, and yeah, that's really interesting about ASB. Um, everybody we spoke to said the same thing. It's very hard to know how they're being used, who's affected, whether they're working. And the government has, did publish last week its ASB strategy, which sort of said that it's very important, but without much more detail. So we'll see. Thanks. Uh, who would like to go next? Um, wait a second, Mike. I'm Ben Hawes, I'm a tech policy consultant. It's, it's actually, the, you know, it's the same question. Which is, are, are there international comparators who you, who you are looking to and saying they, the, the, the general view is they're doing, using data very well, collecting well, or publishing it? Uh, great question. Um, in criminal justice, I know that an academic called Judith Townend has done work on international justice system data. Um, so her research is a place to look. Uh, in terms of how stat systems work, um, I am told that Sweden do this well, um, and Sweden have 
a part of their equivalent of the ONS, which is about saying um, where are yeah where are the needs for data? How can we meet them? Um, so yeah, and have about I think I'm told about 30 or 40 people doing that. So uh, as always, Sweden is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, who would like to ask the next question? Otherwise, it's one from me. Um, obviously, Anna, you've been looking at a lot of areas where there's missing data. How does justice compare to some of the other sectors that you've uh, examined? Uh, yeah, it's really it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it is. I think there are. We came across more indicators of gaps in justice in other areas, and we did look at PQs across different areas um, from different departments uh, as part of the sort of scoping work, and we saw that. MOJ, it's, you know, it's hard to be precise about this, but MOJ seemed to be high up there in terms of data is not centrally held or not available. Um, and I think that's a few, there's a few reasons for that. Um, as Tom said, uh, it's fragmented across multiple agencies, um, police, CPS, courts, prison immigration. Uh, I think culturally, like if you talk to people who've been in the stat scene a long time, culturally there is um, more... Um, you know, resistance sometimes to make data available. Uh, I think it's also difficult in that um, you do have the independent judiciary and they have a stake in, you know, uh, they have a stake in it, so it's, uh, you've got multiple stakeholders. Um, and also at the moment, I believe I'm right in saying we lack a courts inspectorate, so we don't have an independent inspectorate um, whose job it would be to point some of these things out. Uh, so I think for all those reasons, justice is actually, it's a really interesting area to look at. Great, thank you. Uh, particularly glad to hear it's an interesting area to look at, given that we're going to be doing that over the next <laughs> yeah. few months. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, Anonymous asks, what do you think would be the best way to push relevant bodies to conduct and publish the sorts of research that you've mentioned perhaps not there at the moment? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, I think probably it's actually pressure from... Well, if you look at business and economic stats, they tend to be a lot more robust and more available and good at meeting needs, I think. And I think that's down to two things. Um, it's concerted pressure from stakeholders who get together and say, we want this data, it's really important, and know how to work with stats producers. Um, and then also political pressure, I think. Um, so people becoming aware of lack of data as a political issue and um, standing up and saying it matters, probably. Excellent. That's my thing. Uh, have we got any, any more questions in the room? I've got a few more online. But if nobody, we've got one over there. Hi, Matt Herlog, I'm freelance data scientist. Picking up actually on the point you were just making there about sort of the, the, perhaps the reason for the gaps and why you don't see it in maybe other sectors. Is there something about sort of, okay, you've identified these data gaps, but how have you demonstrated or identified what the social or economic value of filling those gaps is? And, and how might, is that a way of potentially solving that problem? Yeah, that's interesting. So. The code of practice for stats has this concept of value, but it doesn't really define what social value is. Um, so we've been, I guess, defining it as people asking for it and what impact it has on people in their real lives, ultimately. But yeah, maybe it is about being clearer about the case for this really matters, it really affects people, potentially has some economic value down the line, um, and trying to, trying to be clear about that concept of what is the value of doing this. Um, yeah, the, the code of practice for stats does talk about value, but it's, I guess it's about how you define that outside the sort of economic case. Yeah, that's interesting. 
Thanks. I'm going to go online next to Anonymous again. Um, how much traction have you had working with the government to get better and more open data? And are there other organisations striving for similar and would a unified approach work better? Uh, yes, I mean, a unified approach would be really good. Um, success. Um, in this space, uh, we've had a lot of interest from the Justice Select Committee and they've been very supportive, um, so that's been really helpful. Um, the open data movement as a whole may be a question for the pub afterwards. Um, <laughs> but, um, Over several evenings, yeah. I suspect. Um, um, but yes, I mean, in any advocacy work, obviously, a unified approach is always really helpful. Um, but um, but you know, what's, what's good, I think, is that people are really, really interested in this and it is, you know, people are aware that it's really important. So, yeah. Great. Um, we've got another question from another anonymous. Um, how do you address matter in respect of an ongoing investigation if you've addressed it to the police but have received no response? Um, they, they, say, they say there was a report in respect of the fact that victims are not entitled to updates on casework. So I suppose there's a sort of question about the data gaps if you're in the justice system, as it were. Um, as an individual, um, it probably depends on the circumstances. Um, I mean, uh, there are subject access requests. You can do requests for the data held about yourself. Um, you can uh, use techniques to try and work out what data is held using that. That's probably what I'd advise. Great. Okay, that right? <laughs> Great, and I'm, I'm going to try and squeeze a final one in. Um, anonymous again. How would you advise balancing the risk of publishing poor quality data, which might lead to incorrect conclusions if it's missing key elements needed to understand the context behind it, with the need for transparency? In 20 seconds. In 20 seconds, yeah. Um, we do have answers to this. I mean, um, the stats system, again, has this concept of experimental stats or even management information, which, you know, you're publishing with the appropriate caveat and saying here, the, but, you know, you can do that without it being official stats and being perfect, and that's really worth doing. Brilliant. Well, bang on time. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Thank you, Anna. Kevin. Uh, and again, apologies to John Geeve, who also asked another very good question there. One key question for the police courts and prisons is levels of reoffending, but our administrative data is only about reconviction, and the vast majority of offences are never brought to justice. How can we fill that gap? Lots of questions that we will definitely be taking away uh, with us and trying to answer as well. Um, so we move now to our third speaker of the evening, and that's Toby. Uh, hello everyone, uh, my name's Toby Hayward Butcher, I work at the uh, Ministry of Justice and I am uh, the lead on strategy and delivery for a cross-government uh, data linking programme uh, which is called the uh, Better Outcomes Through Linked Data or BOLD programme. So I'm going to be giving you a broad overview of uh, what the programme is conceptually today. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about how we've got on so far and uh, share some learnings for others that are embarking on, on similar initiatives. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much of the kind of specific uh, analytical findings that we've produced from linking this data, but um, there are a number of publications that are available uh, online if you Google us, um, uh, but a lot of stuff that's still sort of embargoed before publication. Um, so, so let me just set some context quickly here first. Um, so millions of people in the UK... Uh, can be classified as, as vulnerable and experience vulnerability at some point in their lives and rely on the support of government. 
So the statistics on the left here illustrate some of the ways in which different groups experience vulnerability of some kind. Uh, and as many people will know, the data relating to those needs uh, and the service provided uh, to support those is often kind of very fragmented across uh, different departments, services and systems. So to use an example uh, that's relevant to justice, um, we know that anything up to 80% of crimes are re-offences. Uh, and that's been estimated to cost society approximately 18 billion pounds every year. And years of accumulated academic evidence tell us uh, that individuals are much less likely to uh, reoffend if they have stable accommodation, they find and stay in work, and they access treatment for health problems, particularly addiction to substances. So it's really important to understand whether the interventions to rehabilitate individuals that we're investing our kind of taxpayer money in are, are working is in understanding how many people um, who receive those interventions are going on to find work, uh, to um, secure accommodation, uh, and to access treatment. And that's, that's ultimately a data sharing problem um, because the data on interventions that we, we sort of give to offenders is held by uh, the MOJ and its agencies. Data on um, employment outcomes is held by DWP, HMRC, and others. Data on housing and homelessness is held by uh, DLUC and uh, local authorities, uh, and data on treatment outcomes uh, and access is held by the healthcare sector. So it's challenges like that, um, and there are a few other that are kind of illustrated on the, on the right-hand side of the, sli of the slide, um, that we're trying to tackle through uh, the BOLD programme. So the backdrop we're working against is a, a number of uh, sort of well-known and well-publicised challenges uh, for government uh, departments and agencies. Um, seeking to share data. So these have been sort of well publicised by NAO and others in the past. And I won't run through each one, um, but they relate broadly to um, our ability to identify sort of where data is, um, the balance between sharing it uh, quickly whilst also meeting high ethical standards, technical limitations and inconsistencies between data systems um, and misaligned um, incentives between uh, departments who are sharing data. So it's against that context that we've established the BOLD programme. So in a nutshell, BOLD is a cross-government data linking programme aimed at linking data sets across social policy departments uh, and then analysing this linked data to generate new evidence uh, that would not have been available previously. We have about 70 funded staff um, working in multidisciplinary teams across four different departments. So uh, the MOJ are leading this programme, but we're also partnering with the Department of Health and Social Care, Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities uh, and the Welsh Government. We're using a cutting edge piece of data linking software developed in-house um, in the Ministry of Justice called Splink. Um, and finally, um, we're, we're really putting data ethics uh, and privacy by design at the heart of uh, everything we do. And I think it's important to note that um, we're not the only initiative um, of this kind. There's been a real sort of trail blazed by the likes of Data First, which was mentioned earlier, uh, and other sort of projects particularly pioneered by um, ADR UK. So the programme consists of sort of three core components. So we're delivering four demonstrator pilots. Uh, each focusing on a different policy area. So our substance misuse pilot is led by um, DHSC and Welsh Gov, the homelessness pilot by uh, DLUC, uh, victims and reducing reoffending pilots by MOJ. And each of those are delivering multiple 
uh, data linking projects. And we've designed those to unlock specific use cases. So a use case being uh, a real world decision or process that we've sort of framed as a sort of user story that could be supported by access to evidence derived from linked data. Um, so how, we're kind of delivering that through sort of hybrid um, policy and analytical teams supported by various sort of enabling technical functions, as you can see in the middle here. Uh, and we're also delivering a series of what we call wider impact projects. So those are aimed at building long-term capability uh, and retaining knowledge and learning, particularly around what it means uh, to undertake ethical data linking. So this diagram sets out the sort of seven stage process that we take all of our data linking projects through. So we start by identifying a use case. Um, we then go through the process of negotiating a data sharing agreement. Um, once we've accessed data, we onboard it uh, to um, a, a particular technical platform, depending on the use case and the data, uh, and link it uh, using our Splink software. Uh, and then our teams um, produce uh, and publish analytical outputs in the form of uh, stats, models, uh, and MI from that linked data. Uh, in a couple of cases, we're, we're aiming to go a little bit further than that and, and sort of um, recognize that, that data and analysis will only tell you so much, and we sometimes need to augment that with kind of active primary research out in the field. Um, and then we eventually sort of evaluate our own impact. Now, in terms of the results so far, we've, we've um, so far delivered um, eight data shares um, that are linking together 13 data sets across uh, seven different uh, government departments with a few more uh, in the pipeline. Uh, and this is just a little illustration of how sort of rapidly uh, we've grown this project over the past couple of years. Uh, so I'd like to just finish on a few sort of lessons learned from this. So getting this program up and running and being able to share this volume of data ethically uh, and compliantly um, has been really challenging. Um, so I wanted to share a few top level learnings with you. Um, so first we made the decision early on to structure our program around kind of tangible specific use cases, which has been really beneficial in helping us to communicate the value of data sharing and linking in a way that will make sense to sort of non-technical stakeholders. Uh, and it also supports the principle of data minimization. We're not seeking to share data just for the sake of it. It's targeted, it's limited, it's proportionate, and it's time-bounded. So the second key learning has been around creating a simple and compelling sort of program vision and identity. Um, so we prioritized doing this early. Um, we created a simple sort of one-sentence summary of what we were doing. It was displayed on one of the, the, the earlier slides. And that's helped to really distill and convince stakeholders around government that this is a valuable thing to support. Um, we've also kind of learned that technology um, is a critical enabler, but not necessarily a core driver of uh, program design. So um, we don't think that data linking and technical infrastructure are, are kind of ends in and of themselves. They're vehicles to achieve the broader goal of delivering meaningful evidence to decision makers. So we've been quite pragmatic about what methodologies we've used, what platforms we've used. Um, we've also had to kind of continually reprioritize and um, sort of drop different projects and start new projects as we've gone along uh, and adopt a kind of fail fast mentality. Um, it's been really important for us to sort of secure the support of champions um, within the different departments that we're uh, running this in. So having people and staff embedded within different departments has been really sort of beneficial in helping us to navigate particularly data sharing. I'm aware I'm over time, so very quickly, um, 
you know, the, the, the final thing that's been a real learning is that we've um, proactively engaged with um, the people whose data we are sharing, so data subjects. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that as public servants, we are custodians of highly sensitive data, often collected at a point of real vulnerability and trauma in someone's life. Uh, and, I and I think it's important when we're using that data in new and novel ways that we consult uh, and offer those people an opportunity to kind of give their views on how we're using their data. Uh, that's, uh, that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'll come to the audience in the room for questions shortly, but I'm going to start online. Uh, it's another question from Anonymous. Who knows if it's a different one, the same one, or whatever. Um, are you assuming a degree of data literacy from the consumers of your work? How has MOJ uplifted its data literacy capabilities to ensure your work has maximum impact? That's a good question, and I can probably only offer a, a partial answer to that. Um, the, the consumers of our work are primarily people internal to government um, who work in, in kind of policy and operational teams. So they will have the support of um, much more sort of data literate um, uh, kind of analytical professionals, um, but also we, I know the department outside of our programme have a kind of a, a big programme of, of work to try and upskill non-technical staff um, in, in sort of things like data literacy because that's, that's going to be only going to be a kind of a, a growing need um, over the next few years. Um, we, we also publish a number of um, sort of statistics as well from the, the work that we're doing to link data. Uh, and, th and those will include the appropriate sort of caveats, handling instructions, uh, and, and sort of messaging and narrative around that uh, so that those sort of people, whoever that might be in the public, who are consuming that have the, the sort of the, the best opportunity to interpret that uh, in the right way. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come to the room for the next question. Uh, I'll take the one in the back and I'll come to you two next. Thanks for that, Sam from Med Confidential. Um, you get to follow Anna, who shows that you don't really collect the data that shows things like racism upstream of your services, but you've spent however many years and millions on the things you prioritize. So what would you say tomorrow to someone in, say, the youth justice system about how this work has, if not improved, at least you know, changed the experience they're currently having? Uh, <laughs> um, so, I'm not sure I, I can necessarily answer that question in full, particularly given that the, um, the work that we're doing isn't focused on, on youth justice. Um, I'm, I'm also not necessarily kind of aware and haven't necessarily read the whole report that uh, Anna's organisation has read. Sounds like an interesting report. I'll be looking forward to reading that. Um, in terms of like turning the dial on and making a real impact on, on end users, which I think is the general theme of your question, um, most of what we're trying to do is in the space of influencing policy so that we can better understand where there might be um, issues in the way that, that services across government are interacting. So one of the projects that we've done recently is um, linking probation data um, with um, drug treatment data. Uh, and we're trying to understand how people who are given drug or alcohol community orders and treatment plans um, are, are kind of moving into treatment. Uh, and some of the findings that we're getting from that are, are hopefully going to help us to make kind of tangible improvements to the way that those 
services are run so that we can get more people into treatment um, and uh, ultimately sort of support more people to rehabilitate themselves from kind of issues with substance misuse. I know that's not kind of a direct answer to your question, but we, you know, we don't necessarily do anything specifically in youth justice, so. Thanks. Um, we had a question there. It's a slightly similar question. I'm Fanula Ratcliffe. I work for a charity in criminal justice. We do campaigning and research um, for a fairer criminal justice system. Uh, we're called Transform Justice, if I didn't say that. Um, I was wondering if you could just say, you've just given an example, but maybe you could give another one of how these, this project has, is being used and the difference it's making to policy makers. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I suppose um, another example, which I, I can't share the, the sort of full data on because we're still un undergoing the kind of analysis and that's all embargoed, is we're doing a project which is uh, looking to, to map out and put a number on the number of uh, prisoners who are parents uh, and the number of children who are infected, uh, affected by um, parental incarceration. And that's, that's a figure that we don't necessarily have uh, a kind of a history of really accurate reporting on um, and it's something that policymakers have requested because it will help them to, to sort of design wraparound support um, for uh, prisoners who have who have children who are kind of impacted by uh, being in prison so without kind of sharing any of the results from that piece of analysis that that's another example of where we are kind of actively working with with policy and trying to influence how services are designed. Um, we, we are at a kind of a, uh, a kind of midway point in our project, so um, we, we haven't necessarily published a huge amount of analysis yet. We're, we've been mired in data sharing negotiations and, and DPIAs and um, ensuring that we kind of tick all of the ethical boxes and, and kind of share data responsibly, uh, but we do expect over the next 12 months or so that we're going to have probably anything up to 10 to 15 uh, kind of major analytical publications which will be coming out and hopefully will, uh, you know, help to influence the direction of policy in a few different areas. Brilliant, thanks. I'll come to you in a moment, but I'm going to go online for the next one. Um, Anonymous uh, asks, on ethics, what, if any, projects have you said no to? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think there's, there's been a project... Um, within uh, the, the homelessness sort of area that we've, um, that we've been um, developing, which we, we ditched um, because we concluded there wasn't a acceptable legal basis for sharing kind of local authority sort of housing and homelessness presentations data. Um, that wasn't to say that there was a clear sort of, you know, that this is illegal, um, but we weren't able to identify that there was, that we were confident in the legal basis for that. And it's really important to us that we are sort of meeting very high ethical standards. We're not just meeting minimum standards of compliance, um, but we're also submitting ourselves to regular checks and assurances by kind of ethical governing bodies and that kind of thing. Um, so we, we, we chose not to take that particular project forward. Great, thank you. Um, we'll come back in the room. 
Hi, Toby. Uh, John Spanton from Valtech. Um, I was interested in how much of a challenge the, um, the business of data sharing has been in terms of getting the agreements formed and everyone on board, and any practical advice or lessons learned you'd share to you know, similar programs that are struggling with that and finding it's taking rather a long time? Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing I would say on that is I think it's right that it takes a long time. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, we're sharing often sort of highly sensitive data that's um, about individuals. I think, it's, I think it's right that we take our time with that, that we, we ensure that we've gone through all the right checks and balances. Uh, and if, if that delays things, I think that's a, that's a price worth paying. Uh, I'd rather do that than, than, than rush things. Um, one particular thing that I would say is I think it's really important to have um, people who have aligned incentives between the two departments or, or more that you might be sharing within. So if, if I'm requesting data from the MOJ from another department and it's not particularly aligned to their policy goals and their interest and they're not going to see the benefits accrue within their department, um, it, it's much less likely that that is going to happen on any kind of quick timeline. I think where, where you've got a really shared vested interest across sort of all organisations involved in sharing, um, you're much more likely to kind of have that buy-in and be able to kind of navigate the complex sort of governance approvals that you have to go through to share data. Brilliant. Uh, there are so many great questions online. Apologies that we didn't get around to them, but um, that's been fascinating, Toby. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and we come to our final speaker of the evening, which is Dan. Thank you. Uh, it will appear any moment now. It will appear. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm going on last. It's given me time to recover from the seeing Graham Potter appear on an early slide as a Chelsea fan. What can I say except the data was against Graham in the end? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm chief executive of an outfit called New Philanthropy Capital, and we are a, a charity that works basically to try and improve the impact of the social sector, which is why we're so interested in data uh, and trying to get the sector to use data better, but also to be able to access uh, data that, um, that government has. Uh, and that's why we've got interested in, in data labs. And so what is the problem that one's trying to solve? Well, charities need to measure their impact and they don't really have the data to do that. And, and you know, how can we help them do that more? So they don't know whether the things they're doing are actually working or not. Um, they've got a problem that um, the, uh, you know, they've got to try and work out the outcome, which is difficult but, but possible, but very difficult for charities. And they also have to work out the impact, which is the sustained uh, additional uh, uh, of, of that outcome. And you've got two problems that happen with measuring impact, and any of you who've thought about this know, know this. First of all, it happens over long time periods. You need longitudinal data. Charities are often working with vulnerable people, including prisoners. They're not the kind of people that respond to your survey or have the same mobile phone a couple of years later, so it's, and it's very expensive, so you can't do that. And the second thing, of course, is how on earth do you work, do additionality? Where's your control group? Can you do anything? And so you're, you're, you're stuck, really. Um, and what can you do now? Of course, the answer is um, that government does have the data to make this possible. That's what all the administrative data is all about. They collect it from us. Um, it was interesting hearing some of the things that Toby said. I mean, personally, I think it's administrative data collected off us, and there has to be a damn good reason that we shouldn't get hold of it. But nevertheless, government doesn't tend to think like that. I'm an ex-government person, so I can, can say some of these things. 
Uh, on the justice side, you can see there's a data set there, the police national computer that can help a lot to understand what happened to people who were in prison. Did they reoffend a year or two later? There's a list of some other data sets there in other areas, which are administrative data, which can help answer the impact question. Uh, as Toby kind of said, there's lots of problems. There's uh, issues about privacy, legal frameworks, data sharing, unequally capacity and funding. Who on earth is going to fund these, this kind of work? Um, and when we started off, we weren't sure. We had all sorts of ideas of how on earth you could fund it. In the end, the MOJ took it on. Because we, we worked for some years trying to persuade MOJ. And you might want to ask questions, how on earth did we do it in the end, such that the MOJ set up the Justice Data Lab. You can get some information from those websites. Uh, and the Justice Data Lab, uh, there's quite a lot on the MOJ site about it, including individual results. What is it? How does it work? Let's give an example from a charity that works with uh, people in prison. You might have heard of them, the Clink. They kind of do kind of restaurants in, in Brixton Prison and others, and they kind of train up uh, prisoners uh, so that they can get a job afterwards. Um, and I'm just going to, as an example, give some data from the, the Clink. This was an analysis using the Justice Data Lab in 2019. They've done it more recently, and it says some slightly different things. They're slightly looking at different programs. But the basic idea then is that the Clink um, can provide the individual level data, in other words, the people that the identifiers of the people they worked with. They give that to the, the Justice Data Lab, to government, which can identify the individuals in the data set. Um, and then, the, then they can do a published uh, report with the aggregated uh, return. And in the Clink's case, they sent, in this particular case, 175 people they work with. Of course, the, the um, administrative data couldn't pick them all up for various reasons, so there were less than that. But then they could tell them what happened, how many of them had committed a proven reoffence within a one-year period. So that is a hell of a lot more than most charities uh, ever had in the first place, to even know that. But then, of course, we want to know about additionality. And the Justice Data Lab does that with propensity score matching, um, which is basically how do you control, create a quasi-control group. So in the end, you're doing a kind of quasi-randomized control trial. Um, and you're basically trying to find uh, a, a, a group that's got the same sort of characteristics and background. It's never going to be like a randomized control trial, which is random, but it's pretty close. Um, and so that gives you a control group. And of course, because it's administrative data, it's enormous, that control group, because it's everybody uh, potentially who's, who's in prison and so on. And so then you compare what happened, what the clink did to what the control group did. And you, get a, you can get a diagram like this, which kind of shows that the, um, the, the reoffending rate at sort of 17, 16.9 for uh, the clink is, is lower. Uh, than for the control group, and of course there are confidence intervals around that and all the rest of it. So that's essentially how it works, and it kind of allows for the first time in a very cheap and easy way for organisations to understand whether they really were reducing reoffending or not. Um, and the, say the, the Ministry of Justice uh, do their stuff. We at the MPC, we kind of try to spread it around the charity sector. Interestingly, we, we wanted all this for the charity sector. It's been used a lot by private sector organisations and indeed by public sector organisations, because once it's there, it's helpful to everyone. Where, what else can we do with, um, what, with, with this data lab information, apart from understanding about individual organisations and whether they were being effective or not? Um, first of all, it's been interesting. This is a sort of graph of some of the early ones, uh, seeing the spread about the reduction in reoffending. Uh, to some extent, there's a, an attempt to sort of disaggregate between, between different types of organisation, national government, local government, 
which were more effective. I think more important, what we found very interesting in this is when people had done evaluations without a Justice Data Lab, doing their best, you know, getting good economists and others, I'm an economist, to do evaluations, they often said they've reduced reoffending by 40%, which was always pretty unlikely. You go and do art once a month and you reduce reoffending by 40%, pretty unlikely. It turns out that a really good sort of uh, uh, charity uh, or intervention will reduce reoffending by you know, 3 or 4%, which is very much worth having, but it's at least brought down the sort of the slight madness uh, of some of the returns. And government departments are guilty of this as well. Um, you know, some, some of the things that government claims uh, in terms of the return on investment and so on are, are equally a bit daft. Um, you can also start to group by the type. So rather than the, the organisation, the type of intervention. And so, for instance, you know, uh, this starts to show things that probably instinctively we knew anyway, but nevertheless, that education... Uh, interventions are very strong and so are employment interventions and some of the others which might be very good for well-being some other things but they don't do a hell of a lot for reoffending. Um, and uh, th th these, these findings have caught the news over the, over the period they're all published whenever the MOJ Justice Data Lab does a, an evaluation it publishes it some charities don't like that in fact some of them don't use it because they don't really want to know and they don't, certainly don't want it published. And the whole thing, it's been going for some years. It won in 2014 the Royal Statistical Society uh, sort of thing for excellence. The future, the, the team at MOJ, and I'm sorry there's none of them here today. They, they appear all to be on, uh, on holiday, actually. It's the Easter holidays. There you go, civil servants. What can you do? Um, but they, the, the Justice Data Lab has got, got more complicated over the years, partly through the, the data sharing and the data linking, so that you can look a bit, uh, you can have better control groups. You can also see whether people reoffended less seriously. That when they reoffended, you can see where they got into jobs and, and all the rest of it. There's a lot of stuff, interest in this in other countries, not surprisingly. Um, uh, uh, and you know, we, we, and they're doing bespoke um, work as well for some organisations. And just to finish off, the sort of the data lab kind of world, if you like. Hang on, where's my, where's my last? It's not there. It's not made it. But there's, it's interesting. There's a lots of other stuff on data labs going on. So the employment data lab was launched in November. DWP, after many years and lots of reasons why they couldn't do it, but have launched it. And that's starting to be used. Education Endowment Foundation is playing around with, with doing something a bit similar. We heard a bit, actually, about Legal Education Foundation funding, the work that you're doing, uh, and they're working to do something a bit like this. So it's, it's a very exciting way of using uh, administrative data to, to get a hold on impact for all of us, not just the charity sector, something very, very powerful. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, a reminder that if you're watching us online, please use Slido to submit your questions. It's bit.ly slash slidodb40 if you're not already there. Uh, but let's start in the room. Who would like to ask the first question of Dan? Um, thank you very much for that talk. May I ask, um, you mentioned that private companies are using the data. I know this is a very broad question, but could you give me some examples of, of what they were using it for? Well, no, again, I mean, this is all organisations that are working in prison, with, with, with offenders in prison uh, and trying to work out whether they did um, reduce reoffending or not. Uh, and so a whole host of diff, you know, different organisations do that. Uh, a lot of them are charities. Um, 
uh, but there are some that are, are for profit. Um, so, so they've used it as well. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting issue as well that arose in DWP for an employment data lab. The same thing would happen with the Justice Data Lab about how much the government is prepared to let its own programs go through things like this because they might not know what the answer is. Um, so you, you get into some very interesting issues when you're starting to let administrative data be used by outside people um, and ministers get nervous. Um, and not totally surprised, but that would be some interesting. There were some questions to Toby to some extent, I thought, was sort of asking, you know, what can this be used for? And is it only what ministers care about as opposed to what we as a society might care about? If it's our data, shouldn't we all have access to it? Thanks. Um, we had another question at the back there, and I'll come to Anna next. Thanks, Sam, for my confidential. So, NPC spends quite a lot of its time explaining things to other bits of civil society. So, given the many benefits that come from, you know, preventing problems rather than mitigating them afterwards, what is it you'd say about the work of the Justice Data Lab that you'd explain to staff at, you know, other funders who perhaps don't understand why, you know, this data thing's important? Well, most, most charities are, are trying to do a, a good job for a, a bunch of people, often vulnerable people. Um, and they, you know, they want to believe that, that they're doing good and that they're really doing good. There's famous um, uh, data which shows, for instance, that some programs that were run, particularly in America, the famous Scared Straight program, for instance, which a lot of charities loved and a lot of funders funded, which is basically taking prisoners into schools um, to make them realise how awful it was if, uh, if you offended and got put in prison. In fact, it turned out when the data was, was uh, analysed that, in fact, it was increasing um, sort of bad behaviour. So, so I think, you know, it, it, it becomes a problem in the charity sector because people are not... They're very much driven by passion, very much driven by mission. They will tell you, I work with prisoner X... Uh, we did, you know, we did mentoring with him. He's now running his own business, you know, he's left, and that shows things have worked. And of course, you know, as we always say, you know, the plural of anecdote, you know, is not data. So there's a, there, there is a, a tricky issue within the charitable sector about, about getting them to use data more. But when it's complicated, they certainly won't use it. It's too expensive. They can't, you know, can't get hold of it. And that's one of the great things about the Justice Data Lab. They don't need to understand too much. All they need to do is have the identifiers of the people they worked with. Although I have to say, even that is not the easiest thing. A lot of charities don't have enough identifiers of the people for it to actually be picked up by the Justice Data Lab. Thanks. Uh, let's come to Anna for the next question. Uh, thank you. Um, just yeah, following on from your first answer, um, has government used it itself to do time series analysis of big changes or RCTs itself of policy changes? Has it done that or could it do that? It certainly could do that. I think, I think government policymakers, as I understand it, you know, have been interested in some of the meta-analysis. Uh, I think that's been the most powerful thing, which I'm not surprised, um, which, which would then you know, have some, particularly in their own funding decisions. Of course, a lot of charities are funded by either public donations or grants and so forth. Um, it's been interesting part of, we work with a lot of you know, grant givers as well and trying to say to them, you know, you're, you're funding in the criminal justice space, are you actually asking people to use this free you know, tool to understand what's going on and to, to improve things? I mean, I mean another problem with, with um, I mean, mostly Justice Data Lab's a fantastic thing, but, but like a lot of evaluations like this, 
what it can tell you is whether the thing worked or not. It can't tell you why it didn't work. It also can't tell you, you'll have to test. You know, let's say you do a sort of three month working with um, people and it seemed to work. Could it have worked just with one month? Which is something I know when I was a civil servant, you know, ministers always wanted to know it's pretty expensive to doing this. Would it, could we get three quarters of the impact if we only did half the, half the cost and so forth? But so I think it's those kind of things more than the individual, individual things that's helpful. But it, it could, you know, could ultimately help you look at fundamental things in the employment area. For instance, you could, you know, people will look at individual programmes that have been commissioned, but you could look at Job Centre Plus if you wanted to. Um, that would be very interesting, but a bit controversial, I think. Thanks. Um, I'm going to go online. We've got a couple of um, questions, um, I suppose, a bit, bit more about the sort of technical side of things. Um, one is, uh, great to see this and to hear there are others in the space. Are you looking at new technologies like AI to help speed up and progress the work that is being done? And then there's another question, um, which somebody says they reside in an area with a high level of identity theft. So how can it be proven that reoffending is not statistically down as a result of offenders simply using other people's identities? Well, that last question is, uh, is, is, is sort of existential, it seems to me. Um, but it comes back to, you know, to, to what's, what, how good is the data uh, and all that kind of thing, which is always an issue, of course. Um, I think there had to be an awful lot of that going on to completely change the uh, statistics. I mean, in terms, you know, MOJ now have a team, I think it's of six, in the Justice Data Lab team. I don't know if you know if that's right. I'd love to think you guys are all talking to each other in MOJ, but probably not. Um, and so, you know, they, they are, you know, they, they are playing with a lot of ideas. I don't know, I mean, I'm sure if, if somehow AI can simplify some of, some of this. Um, but the real, you know, issues are, are first of all, uh, having the identifiers and matching them into the, into the data sets. There's, there's linkages going on so that you can, um, first of all, understand not only whether they re-offended or not, which is in one data set, but for instance, did they get a job? Did they have progression? But then you want in your, for your control group, you want to match, you know, your people, what degree of mental health issues did they have, what age they were, you know, so you want some health stuff in there as well. So it's, it's all those kind of things. Now, I don't know whether AI is going to help with data linkage in the BOLD programme or whatever, um, but if, it, if, it, if it's going to help with us do that kind of thing, then I'm sure everyone will use it. I don't, I don't know how advanced the civil service is on AI. I don't know if AI is now seeping into every department or not, or it's just chat GBT doing sort of briefs for ministers or something. Thanks. Maybe a topic for future data bites. Um, we've got time for one more question. I'll take it from there. Hi, just a quick question about the use of qualitative data with what you're doing. So you showed the graph where the reduction in reoffending was, say, 7 or 8% when you actually adjust all the various cofactors. So qualitative um, research could show which probably a dramatic effect on a relatively small number of people in the program and no effect at all on the rest and the qualitative analysis might help you with that. Yeah I think you know you always have to do qual work as well as quant and particularly to understand the mechanisms of, of change. Um, I think that's really important. I mean one thing that, that some of the meta-analysis has shown is that it's very difficult to get very serious offenders to reduce their reoffending rates uh, and that uh, interventions with people who are, are much, uh, you know, have, have reoffended, have offended in a less serious way is much, much easier. And that comes out of the data quite, quite strongly. So you, you, you could break down by type. You've then got to be very careful about your control group. 
And of course, you know, as I said, this is not a randomised control trial. How do charities or other organisations recruit the prisoners who could do the art or do the mentoring? You know, to the extent they volunteer, you've got motivation, which is not in your control, you know, control group. That, there's nothing you can do unless you do a randomised control trial uh, for that sort of thing. But those things have got ethical issues. They're very expensive. They're very difficult to do, even more so with people who you've kind of locked up. Well, Dan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, a few quick parish notices before I release you to the refreshments. Um, video and audio of this event should be on the IFG website within about 24 hours. You can watch as live already on YouTube and the Slido link, which I'm sure you don't need reminding by now, is bit.ly slash slidodb40. Um, the IFG website is also where you can find the previous 39 events. Um, as Tom mentioned, uh, we've had a few justice speakers down the years already. Um, and as Toby mentioned, also ADR UK, lots of use of administrative data across government. Uh, we have various presentations speaking to that as well. Uh, the next IFG event is taking place on Monday the 17th of April. It's on citizens and the constitution, education and engagement as part of our review of the constitution with the Bennett Institute. Uh, we've also got events coming up on obesity policy and of course the next data bites on the 3rd of May and the next justice data bites on the 17th of May. All that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our audience, here in the building and online. Some brilliant questions this evening. Uh, a big thank you to Nuffield Foundation for supporting this event and our Justice Data Project. And finally, please join me um, in thanking our four fantastic speakers this evening. We couldn't have asked for a better 40th four-year anniversary, so thank you very much indeed. <laughs>